uh, Ecclesiastes. Charles, I knew you wanted to see me. That's what I had to do. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Anybody need a Bible tonight? If you'll raise your hand, we'll make sure that you get one. Anybody need a Bible? Miguel, for some reason, this is not sounding right. Can you just boost it up just a little bit, maybe? Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Anybody need a Bible? Yeah, Edith needs a Bible. Do you need a Spanish Bible, Edith, or do you need a... Okay. There we go, great. Okay, very good. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Father in heaven, again we pray that you'll bless tonight's Bible study. Lord, as we go through your word, may your word go through us and challenge us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. British historian Arnold Toynbee made an interesting observation. Of the 21 greatest civilizations in the history of the world, our culture, the modern democracies of the West, is the only civilization that hasn't taught its citizens why they exist. Isn't that interesting? And here's the painful reason why. We don't know. We as a society are clueless. We are hollow men living hollow lives. Today's Americans and Europeans have lost their bearings. They've forgotten who they are and why they're here and where they're going. Western civilization has brought, bought into the atheistic assumption that there is no God. That human beings are simply evolved from lower animals. Survival of the fittest has taken the place of the providence of God in determining our future. And cut off from God, from the spiritual life in truth that exists above the sun, life under the sun makes no sense. As Solomon concluded 3,000 years ago, it's all vanity. Without God, life is meaningless. For nine chapters now in Ecclesiastes, this has been the preacher's thesis. He's explored every area of life, and he's singing the blues. Nothing in this transitory life produces a lasting satisfaction. He says you, you, you have to get above this earthly, physical, tangible world to find something that makes solid sense. In other words, the equation adds up only when God gets factored in. Add God to your life, and the rest of your life gets marked up. Family and friends and job and pleasures and labor, simple things go from vanity to value. They take on new meaning when we see them and understand them in the light of God's will. Well, here in the last three chapters of Ecclesiastes, Solomon continues exploring his vain and empty life. And at the end of the book, he draws his final conclusion. Chapter 10 begins, Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A single dead fly in a bottle of perfume will ruin the fragrance. Likewise, one blemish on a person's record 
can soil their reputation. And I can think of no more classic an example than Richard Nixon. You know, if you examine Nixon's record in office, you'll see a long litany of incredible achievements, especially in foreign diplomacy. And yet today, when you hear the name Richard Nixon, you don't think of a distinguished statesman who served his nation for five decades. No, you think of the shame of Watergate, don't you? You know, it's right. That one blemish can expunge 50 years of public service. And we hear that and we think, that can't be right. That's just not fair. And it's not fair, but it's life. And Solomon is saying it's, it's another of these frustrations, you know, that makes life tough to live. Verse 2, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his, is at his left. At a man's right hand, of course, is his trusted position. Thus, a wise man, he listens to his heart. He trusts his heart, whereas a fool has no heartfelt convictions. He says, even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom. And he shows everyone that he is a fool. Now, here's another one of life's frustrations. The fool is the last person to recognize that he's acting like a fool. <laughs> Why is that? He should be the first, but he's, he's ultimately the last. Solomon is like Mr. T. He pities the fool. He feels sorry for the fool. It just doesn't seem fair. Why does a man make a fool of himself before he realizes he's been foolish? Life should have some kind of indicator light that alerts us before we act foolish, you know. Verse 4, if the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. In other words, make a mistake. And it's our tendency to want to pour out a string of apologies. And yes, an apology may be necessary, but always remember the best way to say you're sorry is to stay at your post. Make sure you don't make the same mistake again. That's the best apology. Verse 5, there is an evil I have seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler, folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. Now, here's another frustration that, that troubles Solomon. A fool sets, sits in the place of honor. Dignified folly, sadly to say, is a staple today in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Dignified folly. Imagine a ruler, he, he's inherited the throne, he, he's had everything given to him on a silver platter, and, and he makes decisions while the rich man, who's made a fortune through smarts and hard work, has to take a back seat. In other words, the man with most power is the least qualified. Solomon says this is so troublesome about life. Verse 7, here's another of life's frustratables. He says, I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. He's seen men of quality and character, moral men, hold menial positions, while the inexperienced and the little-minded people exercise great authority. You know, today, the viciousness of the press and the lack of civility within our society, I think, rules out most worthy candidates for public office. I mean, noble people 
who, who only want to serve their country, they think twice before subjecting their family and their, their, themselves to the cruel and to the cutthroat nature of today's politics. I think we've sort of ruled out the best qualified people. It's frustrating. And the troublesome results are servants in leadership while princes walk around as foot soldiers. Sadly, the proven leaders today are nowhere to be found. They've chosen to sit on the sidelines. He says, he who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits wood may be endangered by it. Now here's another frustrating feature of life. If you're not careful, you can get injured while doing good. You can get injured while doing good. You're chopping wood. You're trying to provide fuel to heat your family over the course of the winter months. What are you doing? You're loving your family. You're being a servant. You're providing for their needs. When suddenly a wood chip flies up and goes right into your eye, it puts out your eye. How can this be? You're doing a good deed, and yet a bad thing happens. Solomon says this doesn't make sense. This is not how life should pan out. This is not how life should work. I mean, you quarry stones to build a temple for God, only to have one of the boulders roll the wrong way and crush one of your co-workers. How can this be, God? In, In a perfect world, serving God and doing good would make you immune from injury. The problem is that our world is not a perfect world. Understand, good intentions don't shelter you from bad experiences. Everyone who enters ministry needs to understand this truth. You know, so often we want to help people and we want to serve God, and yet we get hurt in the process. Our feelings get bruised. Our efforts go unappreciated. It's a frustration, but it happens. You know, Bible college doesn't warn you that ministry has its occupational hazards. (laughs) Just because you're serving God doesn't make you bulletproof. You can still neglect your family. You can still be tempted with pornography. You can be searching out Bible studies on the internet and be tempted with pornography. You can become sexually attracted to a woman that you're trying to lead to the Lord. You can get attacked by a person who wants to take out their anger with God on you. It doesn't seem right. It's the pits, man. But it's true. You can get hurt even while trying to do good and serving God. You know, pastors and leaders need to learn how to help others while minimizing the dangers to themselves and to their families. Verse 10 is an important verse. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. In other words, don't work harder, work smarter. Two lumberjacks had squared off in a wood chopping contest. The the younger man, he was full of energy, full of stamina. He chopped nonstop for a whole hour. His older competitor would get winded, and he would stop for short intervals. 
And yet, to everyone's surprise, the old man won the contest. And when asked by a reporter how he could chop more wood, even while stopping so often to rest, the man interrupted him. He corrected him. He said, I wasn't stopping to rest. I was stopping to sharpen my axe. Hey, when it comes to work in business or in ministry or at school, there are two approaches you can take. You can use more muscle or you can sharpen your axe. You know, in the early days of our church, the answer to every problem, to every challenge, at least for me, was more time and more effort. We just throw more muscle at the problem until we were giving it all the time and all the effort we could possibly muster. Finally, it dawned on me one day that there are other ways to tackle problems. You don't have to work harder all the time. Sometimes you can work smarter. Don't get stuck in a rut. There's always a better way. There's nothing spiritual about resisting technology or being inefficient. A good steward of God's resources will always be looking for ways to do more with less. Well, verse 11 tells us, A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. I mean, some people will turn on you if you don't flatter them. He says, The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. And here's the flip side. A man of few words is rarely considered a fool. A person who knows how to keep his mouth shut is considered a wise man. It's been said a wise man has something to say. A fool has to say something. He says, no man knows what it is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? And again, verse 14 reiterates just the uncertainty of life. You know, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know how to prepare for it. You don't know how to to, to handle it. It just adds to life's frustration, this uncertainty that we all feel and experience. He says, the labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. Now, now here Solomon balances out a picture that he painted earlier. He's already told us, don't work harder, work smarter. But now he points out the fact that some people don't want to work at all. Any labor wearies them. There you go. I mean, they're not even willing to go to the city where the jobs are available. Try to help some people and you'll experience this frustration. You try to help them, you go out, you get them a job, but they don't want to go to work. That's a picture of laziness there. I've gotten jobs for folks to discover that they really don't want to give a hard day's work. That's the problem. Not that there's a lack of opportunity, there's a lack of will. There's a lack of of, uh, um, industriousness. Verse 16 tells us, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. I mean, when the politicians are all drunk by 10 o'clock, you got a problem. The country's in for a long and painful administration. When congressmen are overgrown frat boys, the nation is in trouble. He says, Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles. And your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. You know, Woodrow Wilson once said, Every man who takes office in Washington 
either grows or swells. When I give a man an office, I watch him carefully to see whether he is swelling or growing. This is so true. You know, there are those who, when they step into an office, they they want to serve others. And they begin to grow. There are others, though, who want to serve themselves. And they begin to swell. And, And you know, this is also true in the church. It's true in ministry. Give a man authority in the church, and he will either grow or swell depending on the contents of his heart. If his heart is right, he'll grow. But if there's pride inside, the authority he's given will cause him to swell. Oh, for noble leaders who feast for strength, not drunkenness, Solomon says. Verse 18, because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. I mean, the owner of the building is too lethargic to replace the rotten wood, to repair the roof. He says, a feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Now, here's another of life's frustrations. Solomon is being really practical here. He's saying that laziness is not the only reason that some houses have rotten wood and need new roofs. They lack the money to make the proper repairs. Say what you want, but in this life, it takes money to get stuff done. That's what he's saying. And this is even true in church. You know, when the power bill comes, I can't call Walton EMC and tell them that we're praying for them. (laughs) They don't really want our prayers. They want our money. People in organizations under the sun, and the last I checked, that's where our church lives, they need money to operate. World champion boxer Joe Lewis once said, I don't like money, actually, but it does quiet my nerves. (laughs) I think that's how a lot of pastors feel. It is a reality that you need to understand. There are ministries we can't do, and there are needs that we can't meet, and there are people that we can't help, and there's staff that we can't hire, and there's only one reason. It's because we don't have the money. Notice what Solomon says, but money answers everything. Certainly answers a lot of things. Verse 20, do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Here's another of life's frustrations. You just speak an idle passing comment that you think is confidential with the person you spoke it to. And somehow it finds its way back to the person that you didn't want to hear it. This is frustrating. And this is also a warning. That means you shouldn't say anything that you don't want repeated. By the way, have you ever heard the old expression, a little bird told me? Here is the origin of that expression right here. A bird in flight may tell the matter. Apparently little birds have big mouths. Chapter 11 is full of good wisdom. Verse 1 Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. When a merchant traveled to a distant port to buy goods, he would load his purchase onto the cargo ship to sail it home. But he was taking a risk. What if the ship got lost at sea? 
What if some of those pirates Brandon didn't get out there in the Gulf? What if they looted the ship? Anxious days awaited the arrival of the man's purchase. He had cast his bread out on the waters, and usually his bread returned and netted a handsome profit, but it certainly involved a risk. And here's Solomon's point. Life is full of risk. Don't be afraid to go out on a limb. Live timidly. Never dare much, and you will probably not achieve much. As the old saying goes, nothing ventured, nothing gained. He says, cast your bread on the waters, and God will bring it back home to you. You know, I grew up watching Olympic snow skiing champion Jean-Claude Keeley. Anybody remember Jean-Claude Keeley? Oh, my. He was one of my heroes. No one was as daring and as fearless slaloming down a mountain than Jean-Claude Keeley. I I like what Keeley's motto, he he used to say this, to win, you've got to risk losing. To win, you've got to risk losing. It's been said you can't steal home and keep your foot on third base. You've got to be willing to take some risks in this life. I love what Teddy Roosevelt once said. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory or defeat. It was a group of elderly folks who were surveyed, and they were asked what they would do differently if they were given the opportunity. If they were able to relive their lives over, what would they do differently? And one of the most frequent answers was this, I would have taken more risks when I was younger. You know, I wouldn't have played it quite as safe. You know, the number one regret was playing it too safe. Guys, it's true. You may be disappointed if you fail, but you are doomed if you never try. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And then verse 2. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. Now Solomon is sticking with this cargo metaphor. You know, when, when you ship your goods, don't put all of your goods in one boat. Take risks, sure, but do what you can to minimize your risks. Rather than ship all eight at one time, give a serving to eight different vessels. In investment terms, diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, In the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. In other words, so much of life is outside our control. You can't stop clouds from pouring rain. You can't stop trees from falling to the earth. But then he says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So much of life is outside of our control. But some people allow their fear of circumstances to paralyze their initiative. Yeah, don't stop sowing your seed just because the wind might blow it away. Don't refuse to harvest the crop just because it might rain. Don't get paralyzed by fear. You know, too many folks get strangled 
by the what-ifs of life. You heard of the night stalker. He comes up behind you. He grabs you. Chokes the life out of you. And he puts on his gloves. On the back of one glove is the word what. And the back on the other glove is the word if. And it's the what-ifs that can just strangle the life right out of you. So many people have been robbed by stuff that never happened. Always remember, success is never final and failure is never fatal. It's courage that counts. Verse 5, as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is wonderful advice. You know, here's another frustration. Who knows how life really works? I mean, who knows the mysteries of life? I mean, you go outside and, and do you understand the way of the wind? Kurt Mellish doesn't even understand the way of the wind. He's wrong 90% of the time. I mean, we get into our car. But do you know how disc brakes work? Do you know how internal combustion really operates? I mean, are you an expert in that? No, you're not. I'm not. We marry, but we never take a course in marriage. Isn't that strange? We educate ourselves for everything other than marriage and family, and that's what we value most. I mean, we have kids, but we know nothing of neonatal development. We know nothing of raising them, and yet we have them. We think they come with a book, an instruction manual or something, and then they arrive and there's no instructions. I mean, we live in this world of mystery and perplexity, and, and, and the tendency one would be to want to bail out. You know, I don't understand it, so I'm not going to participate. Solomon says, oh, no. The preacher says, keep living your life. Keep sowing your seed. You don't have to understand all of life's processes in order to participate and in order to take advantage. Sometimes knowing these things doesn't help you anyway. (laughs) Once again, he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Live your life. Take the risks that that you deem necessary and trust God to bring it all back to you in the wonderful way that he can. Don't be afraid to live your life. Verse 7, truly the light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Oh boy, if you live long enough, you'll experience some good days and some bad days. Some sunshine and some shadows. A little winning and a little losing. Babe Ruth hit 714 home runs. But you don't think that he struck out 1,330 times. In 1962, Dodger speedster Maury Wills set a record for most stolen bases in a season. 104 bases he stole that year. In 1965, three years later, Wills set a record for the most times caught stealing at 31. 
He holds both records. I mean, life is a mixture, isn't it? Sometimes we're safe. Sometimes we're out. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. You'd hope you could insulate yourself from the bad that happens in life and taste only the good, but life doesn't work that way. you got to take the good with the bad. And Solomon concludes, all that is coming is vanity. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know... That for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Youth creates illusions. When you're young, you act like you're going to live forever. At 20 years old, I didn't once think of retirement. I didn't once think of the dangers of high blood pressure. None of those things crossed my mind. I mean, young people live ignoring the harsh realities that await them. The one truth, though, that we all shouldn't ignore is that one day we're going to be judged by God, young or old. You need to keep that in the forefront of your thinking. He says, therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. If you're young, enjoy your youth, but ignorance isn't bliss Life is more than proms and pep rallies and football games on Friday night. Regardless of your age, we're all accountable to God. Verse 1, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Have you noticed that the longer you live, the more difficult life becomes? There was a day when the only person I had to worry about was me. Life was so easy and so simple. But then I got married to Mrs. Complication. Oh, no, I love her. I love her, and I wouldn't live without her. But did she complicate my life? You bet she did. And then I had little complication, and Complication Junior, and then Complication the Third. And and today my life is really complicated. Multiple cars. I just bought a couple of cars, and I'm going to sell three cars. And so I actually own seven cars at this moment. (laughs) And you put them all together, they're probably not worth $10,000. I'm not sure. But I got seven cars. I got teen drivers. I got insurance through the wazoo. My life is concerned with FAFSA forms and tuition payments and boy-girl drama and in recent years, wedding plans. Add to that the maintenance of my own marriage, which I'm working on, holding down a job, the aches and pains of turning 50, I mean, I'm telling you, the older you get, the more complex life becomes. And and as you grow older, you encounter disappointments in life and harsh experiences that have the potential of shaking your faith. 
This is why it's important to lay a solid spiritual foundation while you're young. You build a strong faith that will stand against the cruelties and the injustices of life. Learn to trust God before your sin and the sin of others taints your mind. Josiah was one of Judah's greatest kings. But 2 Chronicles 34 verses 2 and 3 tell us what made him great. We're told he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, when he was 16 years old, while he was still young, he began to seek God. There's the key. While he was still young, he began to seek God. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. You know, too many young people, they spend their youth sowing wild oats. And then they end up spending their 20s and their 30s and sometimes even their 40s pulling weeds. Better to spend your teen years sowing good seed that will produce good fruit. Once there was a man who, who was racing to catch a Marta train. And just as he reached the platform, the doors on the train closed right in his face. A bystander remarked, he said, you didn't run fast enough. (laughs) And that's when the man said, no, I left too late. When it comes to following Jesus, make sure you don't leave too late. Start when you're young. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Verse 2, while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, And the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim. Now here is another one of life's frustrations. And this is a biggie. You got to grow old. You got to grow old. No other alternative if you want to be alive. And growing old is the pits. If you let it, it can get depressing. And here Solomon starts to list the symptoms of aging. He says, The keepers of the house tremble. Your hands and your and your arms, they start to quiver. They start to shake. and you get, the, you get the shakes. Strong men bow down. You know, my dad's going to be 80 next year. And I guarantee you, he's lost at least an inch off his height over the years. He used to be 6'3", he's about 6'2". Now, gravity has taken its toll. Age tends to round off square shoulders, cause backs to bow. and You walk sort of bent over. Strong men bow down. Then the grinders cease. In other words, you lose your teeth. That's what Solomon says. He says the grinders cease because they are few. You lose your teeth. The grinders don't work anymore. And then then those look through the windows grow dim. You, you, you get these big, heavy Coke bottle windows in front of your glasses, and, you, and your vision begins to deteriorate. And you have to start looking through the, the glasses, through the windows, in order to see. 
And the symptoms continue here in verse 4. He says, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low. In other words, you lose your daytime hearing. I mean, all this is going on there, pounding the jackhammer out in, the, in front of the driveway, and you don't hear it. Because you lost your daytime hearing. But boy, in the morning, the slightest noise wakes you up. You can't go back to sleep. How is it I can't hear anything in the daytime, but the littlest noise wakes me up at night? And I can't go back to sleep. He says, when one rises up at the sound of a bird. Jackhammer can't. I don't hear the jackhammer in the in afternoon, let alone my wife calling me for dinner. But then I get woke up by a little bird in the middle of the night, and I can't go back to sleep. And he says, and all the daughters of music are brought low. I mean, there was a time when, when you could sing like a bird, but now your voice just quivers and shakes. I mean, your singing days are over, man. I'm telling you, growing old is not for the faint of heart. Here's a poem that could have been written by Solomon. I'm fine, I'm fine. There's nothing whatever the matter with me. I'm just as healthy as I can be. I have arthritis in both my knees. And when I talk, I talk with a wheeze. My pulse is weak and my blood is thin. But I'm awfully well for the shape I'm in. My teeth eventually will have to come out. And I can't hear a word unless you shout. I'm overweight and I can't get thin. But I'm awfully well for the shape I'm in. Arch supports I have for both my feet. And I wouldn't be able to walk down the street. Sleep is denied me every night. And every morning I'm really a sight. My memory is bad and my head's a spin. And I practically live on aspirin. And I'm awfully well for the shape I'm in. The moral is, as the tale unfolds, that for you and me who are growing old, it's better to say I'm fine with a grin than to let people know what shape we're in. Hey, growing old is inevitable. But here's what Solomon is saying. He says, since you can't do anything about it, don't bum the people out around you, okay? Stop complaining. If all you do is complain all the time, then you drive all the young people around you away from you. They don't want to spend any time with you anymore. Enjoy getting older the best you can. Put a grin on your face. Can't help it anyway. Verse 5, also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. I mean, old people become fragile and they they find it difficult to get around. And their immobility creates fear and terror. He, He says, when the almond tree blossoms. Now, almond blossoms are white. And so here's a reference of the graying of the hair. The grasshopper becomes a burden. I mean, get older and and little things, just the little things, like the little grasshoppers, things that never bothered you before, now become a burden to you and an irritation to you. And desire fails. Time for Cialis. The sexual desire diminishes. And then you reach the end of your road, the end of life. And yet notice the end of life is not the end of the road. For Solomon says at the end of verse 5, For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. You do come to the end of life, but the end of life is not the end of the road. 
for you do go to an eternal home. And this is the most crucial decision that a man or woman makes in life, and that's to choose where they're going to spend eternity. Whether their eternity will be in heaven with Jesus or whether their eternity will be in hell with the lost and the damned. Well, verse 6 tells us, Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. And and here's some 3,000-year-old medical terms. The silver cord is the spinal column. Your golden bowl is your brain. I think mine's fool's gold. The pitcher is the lungs. And the wheel is the heart. And so the cord will one day be cut. And your bowl's going to get cracked. And your pitcher's going to shatter. And the wheel is going to be broken. In other words, you're going to die. But verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Your body was made from the dust and it will return to the dust. Whereas your spirit, the inner man, will immediately return to be judged by God. So before you check out of your hotel, remember your creator, my friend. For as God's creation, you are accountable to your creator. And if you don't have a right relationship with God, Trust me, it's in your best interest to establish one tonight. Repent of your sin. Receive God's forgiveness for He gives it freely. If you'll just have faith, if you'll just trust in the Savior Jesus, if you'll surrender to His will and Lordship in your life, then you can pass from time into eternity and know that you have a home in heaven. Reminds me of the man who once said, there was a time when I thought I would live forever, but I found it necessary to change those plans. If that's your assumption, you too will need to change those plans, and I hope you include God in your new plans. Listen to this sobering poem. When I was a child, I laughed and wept. Time crept. When as a youth, I dreamed and talked, Time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still, I daily grew, time flew. Soon I will be traveling, soon I shall find in traveling on, time gone. Time crept, time walked, time ran, time flew, but suddenly time was gone. You know, as I get older, I, I like to remember these wise words. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Solomon is now an old man himself, and he's come to the end of his life under the sun. And it's time for him to draw his conclusion, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Apart from God, life is like chasing soap bubbles. It's of no more consequence than a warm puff of breath on a cold morning. Here one day, boom, gone tomorrow. It's empty, hollow. British statesman Benjamin Disraeli summed up his life by saying, Youth is a blunder, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. And if a creator 
didn't factor into that equation, if there wasn't some intelligence and purpose and plan behind it all, no matter how obscure his purposes sometimes are, life would be one long, bitter letdown. Life would be vanity of vanities. Without God, life is a Coke that's lost its fizz. Life is a cold piece of pizza. Life is a steak that's been left too long on the grill. T.S. Eliot sums it up. Where is the life we have lost in living? Without God, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. God's truth, and here he mentions the Proverbs particularly, are like goads, are like cattle prodders. They're sharp and they're pointed. And at times we're like stubborn animals. We need to be poked and prodded in the right direction. And God's word is faithful to do just that. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. God's word is like a nail. It fastens us to the path of righteousness. You stay faithful to God by being tacked down with his word. He says, And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. I have a high schooler who would tell you that any study is wearisome to the flesh. Solomon is not suggesting we don't study, that we don't read books, that we don't pursue knowledge. In fact, Solomon was quite a pursuer of knowledge. I've heard it said, the man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. It's true. As the old saying goes, readers are leaders. And of course, the one must read book is the Bible. I hope we are all faithful in reading our Bibles. But you see, there's a balance. Some folks spend all their time studying life and never living it. They're always studying about God, but they don't obey God, nor do they seek to know God. It's true. Too much study is wearisome and becomes counterproductive. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so here is the conclusion of Solomon's experiment. The preacher has tried all that life has to offer. And he's discovered that the only thing that really matters in life is to fear God and keep his commandments. To fear God is to realize that God knows better how I should live than I do. Do you fear God? To fear God is to acknowledge that God is the designer and the creator of life. That he is our final authority. To fear God is to bow my knee before him and to ask, God, what will you have me do? Hey, that's it, man. That is the whole reason any of us exist. Reinhold Messner was a famous mountain climber. But he was the first of two men to climb Mount Everest without an oxygen bottle. And then he decided he needed to climb Everest by himself. And again, he succeeded. 
Afterwards, Messner was asked, as are all mountain climbers, why did you do it? And his reply was classic. He said, because at the top, all the lines converge. This is what Solomon is telling us. This is, this is the way it is in life under the sun. From a strictly human perspective, life is a pain. It's a puzzle with a lot of missing pieces. But, but when you dedicate your life to Jesus, and when you focus on what exists above the sun, suddenly the missing pieces come together and the lines and dots begin to connect. At the top, all the lines converge. I've heard it put like this. The world is a spiritual kindergarten where millions of bewildered infants are trying to spell God with the wrong blocks. Solomon has weeded life out so that the only thing left is God. It's as if he's saying to us, I've looked to discover the bottom line, but the bottom line is not at the bottom. It's at the top. It's above the sun. The bottom line is actually the highest rung on the ladder. It's God. Fear God and keep his commandments. And you'll live your life to the fullest and understand what life truly means. Our empty lives find meaning only as we relate them to God. Father, thank you. For your word. Thank you for this wonderful book of Ecclesiastes. Help us to continue to meditate on these truths this coming week. Help us, Lord, to reach other people who grope or are confused or perplexed by life. Help us, Lord, to point them to, to Him who is above the Son, even to the Son Himself, Jesus Christ. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us to share our successes with others. Help us, Lord, to be about uh, not just receiving from you, but, but then extending what we receive to the people around us. We love you, Lord. We ask that you bless us now as we head home. Give us a good week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.